Good morning. Merry Christmas to you all. Is everybody feeling ready for Christmas? Like the fourth Sunday, you're like, oh man, you better be ready. It's going to be here just like that. I mean, we've got a little bit more time, like fourth Sunday of Advent, but you still have a week. So, um, so don't worry. There's still just a bit for that kind of in-person shopping, but, um, hopefully it's been a good Advent service for you. Um, I just wrote a note to, to you this week, kind of thinking back on last Sunday and what a sweet Sunday that was. I, I think there's always something so magical about a Christmas pageant, about seeing the story told through such young, beautiful, little, wondrous hearts. And um, just what a gift that is to all of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well done. Well done. Um, and by the way, thank you, too, for all of you that sent me photos of your morning coffee ritual. Those were fantastic. We talked about this idea of savoring joy, how it's a time of year where we're reminded of the goodness of this season, the goodness of our God, the joy that he brings, and a joy abundant. I, it still is kind of my favorite of the four of these, that image of this bowl overflowing with God's joy, God's grace. And um, I'm reminded of that verse in Ephesians where he says he lavishes us with his love. And today in this theme of love, we, we remember that love that's lavished us. There's a, a poem, I actually read it to our staff this week that I came across by a, a poet named John Shea called Sharon's Prayer. And he, he tells this, basically this, this story of his daughter when she was five years old recounting the story of Christmas to him. And the, the poem goes like this. She was five, sure of the facts and recited them with slow solemnity, convinced every word was revelation. She said, they were so poor, they had only peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to eat, and they went a long way from home without getting lost. The lady rode a donkey, the man walked, and the baby was inside the lady. She had to stay in a stable with an ox and an ass, hee hee. But the three rich men found them because a star lifted the roof. Shepherds came, and you could pet the sheep, but not feed them. (laughs) Then the baby was born, and do you know who he was? Her quarter eyes inflated to silver dollars. The baby was God. And she jumped in the air, whirled round, dove into the sofa, and buried her head under the cushion, which is the only proper response to the good news of the Incarnation. Is that sweet? I know. What a great poem. And Christmas is about this miracle, what um what Lewis would call the grand miracle. He would say it's the the miracle that makes sense of all other miracles. It's the the central piece. He would say almost as if you were had all the pages of a symphony and yet were missing the central part, and you would understand that yes, this was the key by it pulling together the entire thing. And the incarnation is what Christianity would hold as the central message of the gospel. Through it, it ties the whole story, the whole narrative together, and it gives us the clearest picture we have of who God is. In the beginning of John's gospel, he he starts with a prologue where he begins by saying that the word became flesh. And he says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made known 
um, has made him known. And it's an interesting idea. John starts with this idea of reminding us that, that God, no one has seen. And I think sometimes when we use that term God, there, there's a general sense of like consensus, like, you know, God, right? Uh, as if that is just, we all sort of have this innate understanding of who God is. But, but the truth is, that word God is defined in so many different ways and looks so different depending on your context, your perceptions. I was reading something earlier this week and they were saying there's kind of three basic views of the universe, either that it's a cold universe or that it's somehow indifferent or or maybe that it's for you, actually. And depending on how you see that is going to affect your understanding of who God is. And so we, all of us, are are trying to perceive this sort of invisible God and wondering just who he is. Well, this is the claim of Christianity is that we've seen it, that we've touched it, that we can know it. It's been made manifest to us. And this has happened through the coming of God to earth in Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so rather than taking our understanding of God and seeking to understand Jesus, we're invited to actually reverse the order, to look at Jesus and let Jesus help us understand just who God is. Do you see what I'm getting at there? That when you ask questions about what is God like, John tells us, just look at Jesus. Paul reminds us, he is the image of God, the fullness of God. And this question, what must God be like? It's this Christmas message that invites us to understand who God is at his very core. And what we're told is that God is love. The beginning of John's letter, some think that first John was written is like kind of a, a floating uh, introduction to his gospel that went around to d- different churches, kind of helping them understand what was at the core of it. And in first John chapter one, one through four, John writes these words. He says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things that our joy may be complete. Because in this message, in this story, we see who God is and we find out who we are. That not only do we have this God who's a God of love, but that love has made all of us worthy. I love how he says, John says, the life was made manifest. And that word in Greek is this word Zoe, this spirit life, this kind of divine life, which gets at kind of the the essence, the spark of who God is. That this life, this divine essence of God was made manifest in Jesus. 
And when you look at that word Zoe throughout the New Testament, you, you find every time that word life is used, there's such a like expansive um, wording beyond behind that, where it's called the word of life or the spirit of life. Jesus is referred to as the newness of life, the light of life. And we're even told that death is swallowed up in life. And this is at the heart of the Christmas message. When we use this word incarnation, that's what we're talking about. The word made flesh, the divine made manifest. And John assures us you can touch it, you can see it. And the tangibility of that, the physicality, the actuality of it. Tolkien described this as the myth becoming fact, right? Actually here and in our presence. And this isn't God's act of pity on mankind. It's his act of love. And in Romans, Paul writes these words, God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this picture of this love, you you see it like flowing one directionally, right? This love initiates, this love comes towards us. This love pursues us and comes after us. This love humbles itself and comes down to us in a form that we can see and comprehend. A friend of mine wrote a blog, and I'm not sure if this was his idea, but I loved this quote from it where he says, God loves things by becoming them. It's an interesting idea. But his love demonstrated in this humility and in this sacrifice that comes down on our level. The only way that we could understand this unfathomable God is for him to come in a form that we recognize and communicate to us in a way that we could understand. And still the demonstration of love baffled us and we still seek to get our minds around the depth of what this love represents. I still, I'm going to admit, have not watched The Chosen. I'm holding out. I'm holding out for the extended DVD version when that comes out or something. But um, but everything I hear from everybody who watches it is just the physicality of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus that's in there. And I'll take your word for it. Um, I, but I, I think what a great exercise that is. Anybody that goes to Israel, and I haven't been to Israel either, but would talk about walking in the footsteps of Jesus. That this isn't some idea or some philosophy out there. It's this historical moment that we celebrate. And at Christmas we're reminded this fact that God came to earth because he loves it. And he came to earth because he loves you. So much so that he would end up giving his life in an act of sacrificial love for us. Which should tell us something, not only about God, but about you. That God in all his wisdom considered you worthy of giving his life for. And I think sometimes there's a a doctrine that we've latched on to of original sin, where we've sort of seen that as this kind of worthlessness of humanity. And, And the Christmas message actually contradicts that. 
We're reminded of the very beginning of creation in this sort of new act of creation that we see demonstrated where God originally creates man and calls it beautiful and good. So that when God comes down, he's not coming, like I said earlier, in just pity for this miserable creature. He comes down to redeem what he considers to be of utmost value, which is you and your heart. So this incarnation, this miracle, is a rescuing of humanity, but really at its essence is a healing of humanity. There's a brokenness in us or a poison in us of self-centeredness that has cut us off from God. And that that bowl that you see filled up, the, the, the truth is we in our hearts are able to like hold that love at bay so that it's just spilling over and not received. But the healing that takes place is a receiving and opening ourselves up to God. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And I don't know about you, sometimes I think we're embarrassed to admit that we're sick. We want to hide this or that we're we're injured. I think even sometimes like during the last couple of years of COVID, we've been sort of ashamed to admit we have COVID. I had never got it, but... Just kidding. I mean, I, you know, I didn't, but I, superior <laughs> genetics or something. I don't know what that is, but, um, but, but you go, sickness, no, sickness just gets us, right? It, it's a, there's a vulnerability in us, but, but sometimes there's something in us that wants to pretend everything is okay, to hold that kind of humility or our fragility at bay and pretend. And so you see here in this receiving part of it is acknowledging, oh, my heart is sick. My heart has a need to be healed. First John 4, 9 says, in this love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this life, this, this essence of God, right? This is, we receive this in, in this love, this life transforms us. It's bringing us to life. This is the healing necessary. It's what we've closed ourselves off from, but it's what we're invited into, this receiving of this life. And when we think about love, I think love is another one of those words that we go, oh yeah, we all get it, right? Love. There's just love. We, we all understand as if there's a, a sort of universal definition. But, but the truth is, I think that not only is Jesus helping us understand who God is, Jesus is helping us understand what love is. And this sacrificial love, this love that lays itself down for another, this is not a love that comes naturally to us as human beings. This divine love comes alongside and suffers with us. It humbles itself. It empties itself for us. Jesus is going to say, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And this is what you see God doing coming down and emptying, pouring himself out in this last, as we picture what love is, we're reminded that it's costly. 
There's a reason we, we don't love like this. It, it takes courage and it makes itself vulnerable. In a way, it puts itself at risk. And the way that God heals the world is by pouring and emptying himself out on our behalf. And the simplicity of what it means to receive it is really, in so many ways, just a saying yes, an admission of need, an acceptance of love. It's such a simple message. And yet, there's massive implications behind it. Because as you receive it, you're told who you are, but you're also called to who you're to become. Jesus tells us, as many as receive him, he gives the right to be called children of God. Which to me is so beautiful that 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 childhood in us is restored in this healing And to open ourselves up to this, as simple as that is, is to make ourselves very vulnerable. I think of that, you know, we've talked about how, how lobsters, when they grow, they end up shedding their outside carapace, or however you just say that. And, and they, there they are, kind of in their nakedness, and they, they run and hide under a rock until they can sort of regrow their shell. And I think there's something about that posture making ourselves humble enough to receive, opening ourselves up courageously like that to receive and to trust that love. And as that love comes in, that light comes in and it brings healing, but it also pushes out the darkness. It changes us, it shapes us into a new creation. It's a new creation story that's begun. And as John is telling us this, this love has come in. It's manifest as Jesus. That love is for you. It initiates. He then says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's what you're signing up for. Like, just be warned, right? That, that the nature of God is sacrificial love. But the end result of a Christian life is a heart that pours itself out in sacrificial love. Which is intimidating, right? All of us, I think, tend to go, God, how much is this going to cost me? Right? And we, we want to give God a portion. And he says simply, oh, I want your whole heart. I want all of you to surrender that. And, and the way of growth in the Christian life is a, a giving and a giving and a giving of our heart with the promise that as we grow, we become more and more free and more and more ourselves. We learn to, we become expansive, right? That bowl is able to receive more and more of the grace of God and then to pour out more and more of that grace on others. The biblical word for love in, in the Hebrew is hesed. And we, you've heard me mention this. Others have mentioned it in our teaching that it's a word that we don't really have an adequate translation for. So hesed often gets translated as loving kindness, which it is, as, but it also has so much more to it. 
It's this sort of unrelenting, never-ceasing, bottomless love for us. But hesed can also be used as a, a way of bestowing honor and dignity. Hesed is sometimes translated as favor. And so this sacrificial love is pouring out on each one of you, this honor, which is why he says, like my child, you're like a child of mine. God's love doesn't just heal, it restores us to our proper place. And the Greek uses the word agape, which was also a new term. It conveyed new meaning to a word that was unfamiliar, this unconditional, right? It had nothing to do with our sort of behavior or earning or meriting this love. It just was there and it was for us. This has said, this agape love. And our understanding of it, to really grasp the fullness of what that means, requires just, just to merely look to Jesus. Jesus in his humility. Jesus as he goes to the least of these. Jesus as he reaches out to those forsaken by society and pulls them in to that place of dignity. You've heard me talk about this, that, that sometimes you can define Jesus' ministry as like eating good food with bad people. And Jesus would go to the, like the low table at the party. And I have a feeling that everybody kind of looked over there and thought, God, I wish I was sitting at that table. I think of tables that Jesus would sit at were kind of rowdy, filled with laughter. There was just a joy spilled out and a dignity that went to these people who thought they got stuck at the wrong end of the room only to find out they're sitting with the king. And this is what this love does. And see, we live in this world that is entirely quid pro quo, right? Where love is an exchange, that if you give something, you expect to get something in return. If I love you, there's an expectation like, hey, now, now you go, right? I'll tell you something good about yourself or I'll extend some grace, but I at the very least expect a thank you back. That's how we understand love. And Jesus models something very different than that. Where you give without expectation of receiving. Where that love extends itself to places where it may not be returned, even goes as far as love for our enemy. And if I'm honest, as I look at that love, I marvel at that love, I want in so many ways to love like that until it sort of gets challenged in me and then I don't any longer. Do you know what I mean? Like where we sort of recoil back, where it, it asks too much. I wish I could say I used to struggle with that, but not anymore. But the truth is I struggle with it like last week I struggle with that. Where all of a sudden I feel myself overextended. I find myself vulnerable in a relationship. And what I do is I just start backpedaling like crazy. I start listening to like Paul Simon songs like Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, right? Like I want to, I want to retreat back to where I'm safe. Like, oh no, I'm loving. I've opened myself up, right? Like, ah, I'm a rock. I'm an island. That's like, we come back to this place of safety because the truth is when we love sacrificially, it's vulnerable. It's in a place where we can get hurt. It's risky. 
It feels really uncomfortable. In Luke, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And I I think, you know, this idea of loving in such a way, you lose this way, don't you? At least in a way. You come out on the short end of the deal when you love like Jesus loved. At least at first glance. That you end up paying out more than you receive in return. And that is so unnatural to us. This self-protection, this ego of mine that, that wants to somehow make sure I come out a little bit ahead. Turns out that's the thing that needs to go. And it doesn't go quietly. I, I heard somebody quote this week, something Anne Lamott wrote where she was saying, anything that we give away generally has claw marks on it. <laughs> We're like, God, here you go. <laughs> like, ah! It, it's, it's hard to give up. And this is this process, this work that God's love does in so many ways, a sort of slow work of opening our hearts up to this posture of surrender. It's difficult to us. And this reality, it reminds me of something that Richard Rohr said. He says, we suffer to get well. We surrender to win. We die to live. We give it away to keep it. No wonder, like, this gospel is mysterious to us. That doesn't make any sense. Let me read that again. We suffer to get well. We surrender to win. We die to live. We give it away to keep it. That's why Paul said, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're to be a like pitied above all, right? If this is not the way the world is and we live in this posture of giving and giving and giving, that we come out on the short end. But the promise, the promise of the incarnation is that Jesus says, oh, no, no, there's victory, that this life made manifest swallows death, that on the other side of it is deep reward and that the work that is being done in your hearts is eternal. The changes that are happening are like gold. More value than gold. Who you are becoming. But it's not just this sort of promise of one day, right? Somewhere down the road, this will pay off. It's going, no, right now, here and now, as you live this way and you let go of the self and you learn to love sacrificially, like you start to come to life. Your capacity to experience each of these things, hope and peace and joy and love are all tied to this. 
I love that psalm that says, I'll run in the ways of your commands when you enlarge my heart. And I think this is what God's love does. As we empty ourselves of all that constriction, all that smallness, and embrace this larger love, it shapes us into a heart that beats so healthily. But then calls us into this place of loving others like Jesus loved us. And this is so critical in this. Is this true? Well, have you experienced it? And this is what I would say. I like stand here and go, look, I testify to the truth of this. That when God asks of something of me, yes, there's claw marks. But I'm never, ever disappointed. That as I step in, encourage, and love in that place of vulnerability where I feel overextended, certain things happen. There's a lightness that comes with that. A joyfulness in that humility. And the things that we long more than anything, like intimacy and connection, happen when we lower that guard. This quid pro quo way of looking at the world isolates us from each other and it, it forms like enemies out of the other. But to open, open ourselves up as we're invited to, Jesus is saying, like, I was the manifestation of the divine life, but now you are. So that when people look at Christians, they should see Jesus. When people look at the church, they should see Christ. And how important it is. This isn't like some sort of extra thing. This is like our calling as a church. To love each other like Christ loved us. To love the world like we've been loved. That's our mission. That's our assignment. And there's so much life in that. It takes courage. It takes us stepping out in faith. But as we do, we find a God that meets us right there with a sense of delight. And I think at this time, you know, we, we practice giving gifts at Christmas. And, and we, I think, appropriately go, look, this is one of the messages that we would hold to is that this is not about gifts. This is not about this sort of consumer holiday that it's become. But at the same time, I think it is a helpful way for us to understand the opportunity at this time of year. Because love is so much more than just giving gifts. And yet, what a beautiful picture of how we bring healing into the world. It's this generous gift that we give and we give and we give. But the best gifts are given with a sort of imagination, aren't they? I mean, think about this. Have you received, like, what's the best gift you've ever received? Think of just a gift that you treasure. And I think of, for me, the best gifts have, like, two qualities to them. They say something about the person giving it. But they also show that that person giving it knows me. Right? Isn't that the best thing about a gift? When somebody gives you that thing and you're like, oh, you totally get me. And when I think about us loving and practicing this, I think to me this is a great way to kind of access this heart of compassion. 
that I think the selfless giver is looking for ways to bestow good gifts on those around them. It's where our mind goes when we're thinking. When we think of a person and we, we seek to know and understand them in their heart. To give good gifts that we know will bring delight to others. And it's probably easier for us to do that to the people that are like closest to us and in proximity, right? And Jesus is saying, now take that a step farther. Maybe who are your neighbors that you could give those gifts to? Maybe somebody that you're a little grumpy with, right? The guy that doesn't put his trash cans away on time. That's me, actually. But um, but to think of those kind of people and to give gifts. Or to think of that person that maybe has offended you. And go, how could I do this in such a way not to rub salt on a wound or to invoke some sort of guilt or to make a point? No, how do I do this to bring delight to somebody else? And see, I think this is how Jesus' mind works. It's out of like joy that he does these things. It's that, that lavish love he cannot help but pour out. And see, this is what I see with God in my own life. That so often the way he disarms me shows me just how well he knows me. He knows what I clutch to. He knows what I'm afraid of. He knows my my weaknesses and the areas that make me want to sort of run and detach. And, and God pursues me in those spaces and invites me out. He creates opportunities and invites me to step in and to have courage. And I think in this season of giving, this is the reminder that, oh my gosh, when we live in this way, there's so much joy in it. But it takes practice. It takes a sort of boldness to step into that space and to give without knowing that anything will be returned. But thinking about, especially in this season, how do we give those gifts to people who can't return those things to us? That's why James said, widows and orphans, that's the purity of religion. To give to the people that have nothing to give back. I love just Sally sharing about the, the people that have been serving this last week at Unidos and, um, and everybody that took part in that. You just see them beaming with joy. The opportunity to give sacrificially of our time, of our hearts. This is the reward. The reward is life. The reward is that we get back so much more than we gave. And so this quid pro quo, the truth is that what we have coming and pouring into us again and again as we give is just more and more and more of God's love. As we empty that out, we receive more and it enlarges us. My heart for us as a church is that we would be generous. Generous by bringing light to this world by bringing hope, by letting people see that love that gives sacrificially. I want to close with a a poem I love by Howard Thurman that talks about the work of Christmas. Howard Thurman writes this. He said, when the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, 
when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, the work of Christmas begins to find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among others, to make music in the heart. Couple thoughts going deeper for you guys. Um, and it's kind of like question one has a part B, question three has a part B as well. So here, first one, think of a recent time you felt vulnerable or exposed. I'm just saying, what is your self-protective strategy? How do you typically seem, seek to protect your ego? It's a good thing to know about yourself, right? Not to shame yourself or guilt yourself, but to just go, oh, there I go again. There's that thing that I do, right? That's my ego doing its thing. And how does Jesus' example challenge that strategy? How might you respond instead with humble, sacrificial love? So what would it cost you? And the, the truth is it does. When we give in that place, when we step in in that place of courage, it costs us something, but we gain so much more. And the second part of this, can you think of a gift that made you feel seen and known? What made it feel so special? What about it spoke to you of your value? And a follow-up to that, is there someone in your life that could use a gift like that? Imagine how you might give a part of yourself to them in a way that would make them feel seen and known. Think of somebody right now. And don't just let that be an idea, right? Linger on that. And let's follow through with that. These simple little ways of bringing life to the world. God's divine life. You might be the only picture of Jesus that they've ever received. And this time of year when we celebrate the incarnation, may we be that image, that fullness of life to a world that is struggling and in need of healing. May we step in to our vocation as healers. We're going to have people down front to pray and if you have never like received that love in and you feel compelled, maybe you already did in the service, just say, yes, I want that. But we would love to pray with you. So please come down and we would love to pray to open your heart in that vulnerability to that love. Would you stand with me? We're going to have food out on the patio. It's going to be delicious. We have uh, an Advent service tonight at 5. We would invite you all to be at. Um, as you go, let me leave you with a blessing that God would bless you and keep you. God would make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And that God would lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. God bless you. Thanks, my friends.